thought of, I love that word, Baba. Isn't it interesting that uh, when the scriptures speak about God the Father, and Paul in particular says, we cry, Abba, Father. If you arrange the spelling a little differently, Abba, Baba uses the exact number of letters just in a slightly different order, but they have the same effect upon us. Amen. Good to know God our Father in such a, in such a wonderful way. My title's on the screen for you already today. Uh, God's Trophy Case. I wonder what would be in something like that. And so let me, um, we're, going to, we're going to look at Ephesians in just a little while. So if you want to take your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 in just a little bit. I was provoked with this kind of message in the past week. We're so keen in the era in which we live to understand our purpose and to gather some meaning from life. And many of the things that we do, our preoccupations, I suppose, and our occupations as well, have to conform. People says, why do you do what you do? And we say, because. We have to have a rationale for things. And in our breakfast on thir and Thursday morning, as we met with the students, so a part of the morning is that Ken always provides us with a reading from a book by R.C. Sproul. And the reading provoked us to think about purpose. And it came to my mind as he led us in that reading that just a short time ago, one of the top books for every Christian, I suppose, at least in the Western world, and I'm not sure about the rest of it, was the book, The Purpose Driven Life, which had been preceded by Rick, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church. You see, we find it necessary to invent purposes for everything that we do. Some of it is evident, but some of it is not. Every game, every leisure activity. I believe that fishing is relaxing. That's my why. It's a natural stre stress reliever. And when I stand on the uh, when I stand on the sandbar on the Humber at the 15th hole and Ken sidles along in his boat at some point in the morning. I'm already connected for a while. That's just wonderful for me. I defend another of my bad habits by saying hockey is good exercise. Good way to blow off stress. Take anything that's happened to you in the course of a week, transfer it to that little black object called a puck, and hit it as hard as you can. Wonderful. Golf, I'm told, is a place to build relationships, good relationships. I'm not so sure because I can't, I don't play the game. I'm afraid to play it because I'm afraid I might One like it. One of golf's immortal moments came when a gentleman from Scotland demonstrated the new game to, pre to president then, Ulysses Grant. So you know it was a while, a while ago. The man from Scotland carefully placed a ball on the tee and took a mighty, mighty swing. A good cut, as some would say. The club hit the turf and scattered dirt all over the president's beard and the surrounding vicinity. The ball stayed on the tee. Again, the determined man from Scotland swung, and again he missed. 
And the president waited very patiently through six swings, and then he quietly stated, there seems to be a fair amount of exercise in the game, but I fail to see the purpose of the ball. <laughs> see, there's that word purpose again. I read an account last week and of about a man who was determined to give his mother a birthday gift that would outshine any possible other gifts that she might be given on her birthday. And so he had found out about a bird that had a vocabulary of 4,000 words. The bird could speak in numerous languages and even sing three operatic arias. He immediately bought the bird and paid the whopping sum of $50,000 for it and had it delivered to his, to his mother. And the next day, which was her birthday, he phoned to see if she'd receive it and asked her the question, what did you think of the bird? She replied, it was delicious. <laughs> See, I think at times we exist within a definition of purpose. If we were to miss the purpose of the church... What God intended, we could turn it into anything we wanted to. It could be, it could be negative. It could be very wrong-spirited. could exist for the wrong kind of motives. And it's possible some churches do. But if I were to ask a question about the purposes of God, what's God's purpose in us? What's God's purpose for you and me? Really, what's the meaning behind what we do week after week after week? Then maybe the Apostle Paul has offered us a good answer in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 4. Let me read these verses for you this morning. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that, here's the transition to purpose, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Read purpose in this. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then he says the words again, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then purpose again, second statement. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. One of the best statements of purpose you will find in all of New Testament thought. You see, Christ's purposes for us 
And Paul says it so ably here, flows out of his love for us. It's just that simple. God loves what he's created. He loves whom he has created. When he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, we received a life-giving spirit. We, we were distanced from him by sin, but we were not unloved even in our sinful state. And Paul makes it clear that even though we were dead, you see, the problem with us is not that we are sick because of sin. It's not that any other malady affects us. When Paul describes it and when Jesus talks about it, it is that we were dead in trespasses and in sins. In that state, God loved us. So many people have tried to plumb the depths of logic for God's reasoning in loving the human race. Andre Crouch wrote a, a wonderful song that I, I heard as far back maybe as my early 20s expressing the mystery of God's purpose. And he phrased it in a question. I don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why he cared. I don't know why he sacrificed his life. Ah, but I'm glad. I'm glad he did. Go look up the verses of that song and hear Andre Crouch singing it. You see, God's purposes were accomplished in love and made real by the resurrection of Christ. We were made alive with Christ and called to sit in heavenly places. How many people here today really feel as though you've been sitting in heavenly places? And some of you will look at me or you'll say to yourselves, you don't know my work environment, Pastor. Heavenly places. You don't know where I live. You don't know who I live with. You see, heavenly places don't necessarily refer to our natural surroundings. I'm positive that Christians who labor in some of the world's developing countries endure things that aren't exactly heavenly. I listened to a Canadian soldier not long ago who was on the bench with me describing the sounds and the smells and the dangers of the time he spent in Kabul, Afghanistan, and heavenly was not the kind of ter terminology he used. Two things I want you to remember about the purposes of God from what Paul wrote today. When Christ ascended into heaven 40 days after, after the re resurrection, in a sense, we ascended there with him. He is ahead and we are the body, and we're not disjointed. We are, as the scripture says, and as Paul says so often, we are in Christ. And today, we wait for the reality of our faith being made sight. The rapture of the church will change our location, but your citizenship and my citizenship is already in heaven. I am a pilgrim and a stranger to this heaven, to this earth. I am connected with Jesus Christ, who is the head and so where he is, the body is. We await the reality to take, to take place. There are times when we have felt a little touch of heaven. If you closed your eyes during the singing a little while this morning, you'd have gotten a little touch of what a celestial choir must sound like. Not because of the proficiency of my brothers and sisters who sang. That's not my point. But it is the international flavor of what the church is really like. It is 
God encompassing the entire world. And he's showing us what that looks like in this congregation at the present time. There are moments when the presence of God is so real that we can easily break the bonds of distraction and preoccupation with this life and feel inside of our spirits the kind of kinship that has to exist with us in Jesus Christ. We feel his closeness in a fresh kind, kind of way. It can happen in worship. It can happen in prayer. And maybe it doesn't happen quite often enough. It's a little like John in the penal colony of Patmos. And revelation is about to unfold. And the scripture says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He felt a connection with heaven. I trust you know that. I trust you know that connection in your soul. That there are times when your soul communes with God. And you're in the presence of Christ just as real as we are in each other's presence today. You see, the means that God used to provide us with spiritual life. When God purposed to do it, he needed an instrument. And his instrument was his own grace. What's happened to you and me is that Jesus Christ has applied the power of his perfect sacrifice to the inborn stain of original sin and also the sins that we have, we have committed. And the power of his blood is able to make us clean in that it's perfect. And we receive this through having a penitent heart coming to him in repentance and faith. And the reality of that new relationship with him is really what makes our worship intense. Grace tells me that something outside myself, something external has been provided for my, sal my salvation, something that I've got no hand in, something that I could not create myself. I'm saved by grace, and it's activated personally by faith. I look towards what he has done and say, Lord, that is for me. And in that moment, when I express my faith in him, I really become a Christian. Verse 7 is really the crux of what I want to say this morning. God's purposes are really displayed there. And I repeated this, I repeat it again, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. All that God has done has been in order for him to display us. We are God's trophy case in that regard. God wants to show us to the world. This past week, New York City put the hospitality of the people of Gander and vicinity on display with a Broadway production called Come From Away. People sometimes take priceless items and display them. The British government does it with the crown, the crown jewels. All of this talk of showing us off as, trophy, of, as trophies of his grace challenged me as to where God would show us off. Where does God want to put you? And I reflected if one of the options in my title. Does God want us as trophies? Well, I don't want you to understand the common understanding of a trophy. Dusty pieces of metal and wood that mark something that is past. That's what trophies are. 
Trophies are for events and achievements that are yesterdays. I had my name on two trophies when the Bruce Arena went up in smoke in Port Basque. My achievements, gone forever. Don't worry about it too much. I think one of the awards was for the most minutes and penalties. <laughs> I think God's more interested in something that is timeless, something that is current, not a dusty momentum of a past deed. Secondly, does God want us in some kind of a curio cabinet? Now, to me, this is a place to keep one-of-a-kind things, little gifts, curios, as they say. A curio is something that's considered novel or rare or bizarre. And I know what you're thinking. You're looking at one now, but I'm looking at, at them too. <laughs> a curio is a decorative object, has no usefulness beyond its curiosity value. It's a spectacle, a conversation piece. I think God wants more than that from those that Christ has cleansed and filled with his spirit. I trust you're getting the picture that we're not something to be taken and placed upon a shelf and only seen in passing, something that doesn't command daily attention. And does God want us in a museum? Some of us, I know, have been called old fossils. And we feel as though at times we've been mummified and stored away until enough time has passed until we're worth something. I imagine a group of people in the future being led through a rare building that existed in antiquity called the church. And the tour guide says, this artifact was discovered asleep in a pew 500 years ago. We think the expression on his face means that he could not have been enjoying what he was hearing in that location. In fact, he might have been dead there a long time and nobody actually noticed. See, God doesn't want us to be artifacts. When Paul again describes what God wants us to be, he says we're to be living sacrifices. He doesn't want people whose history needs to be interpreted by archaeologists. He wants people through whom he can display life and glory today. In fact, God's intention is to show us as what we used to be, what he's made of us, and then what we do for him. When we walk around, people should be able to look at us and say, there goes something that God has done a great work on. Wow. See, don't settle for being a stuffed moose head over someone's fireplace. I see one at Marble Mountain every winter, and you do too if you go there. Wonderful set of antlers, glass eyes, a sturdy wire frame to keep the shape, has a commanding presence, but the truth of the matter is that it's dead, dead, dead. He no longer walks the slopes, he doesn't chew on any of the young birches along the way, and he doesn't perpetuate his species. He's a trophy. He's dusty and he's lifeless. And he's mostly fake, except for that little bit of bone or, cell or cellulose called an antler that has hardened, and maybe just the, the little bit of fur that's left, or hair in a moose's case. See, for God, there had to be a way for him to show himself. 
God is all about self-disclosure. He wants what he's like to be seen. After all, he's the author of eternal life, and he's the creator of all life. How does he show himself so that others will accept the work that he's done? I remember studying art for Reach for the Top. I was on one of those crazy shows way back then, back when Art Andrews and Harold Horwood and those people, and then there were people on the local scene in Cornerbrook. We would come in here once in a while and play against other, other schools and try to beat them to the buzzer and answer the questions. I studied style for that because I wanted to do the painting part of it. Rembrandt out of style. And to this very day, I can tell you the difference between a Vermeer and a Rembrandt and a Bruegel and a Picasso, maybe even a little bit of Salvador Dali. See, God displayed the incomparable riches of his grace with a unique style that Paul states was kindness in Jesus Christ. The purposes of God are painted with the palette of kindness. So if you want to show who God is, you paint him a picture with the kindness that flows out of your life. God uses kindness as a signature, his signature on human existence. And God's style is to win the world with kindness. And Paul cautioned the Romans in chapter 2 and verse 4 about overlooking the common grace of God. And here's what he said. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? Tolerance and patience. Not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. What kind of trophy does God have? It's a trophy that reflects kindness to others. Now it's true that God is kind and good. But his kindness comes with purpose. God sends rain our Nigerian friends sang about it. Well, not only Nigerians, our internationals sang about it this morning. And he offers sunshine. It all comes from the hand of Baba. He has made the world in such a way that its bounty satisfies our needs. But in these things, his kindness is complete because God's kindness has redemption at the core of it, at its heart. Paul wrote a short letter to a man named Titus. And in chapter 3, verse 3, he says this. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You look at the life of Jesus Christ, and you'll see kindness. You'll see a rare kind of kindness. You'll see kindness when it should have been retaliation. You see kindness when it should have been eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You see kindness that overrides every single thing to the very point where even a hardened soldier of Rome says, surely this was the Son of God. See, just like his love, God's kindness is eternal. Trophies can get burnt. Trophies can be broken. No bowling trophy one time that's hardly worth talking 
talking about, and I broke the ball off the end. All it looks like is one guy with his arm outstretched. I don't know what the back arm was for anymore. So what happened to it? Muriel said, enough of that. It goes in the garbage. See, curios lose their appeal and crumble. Museum pieces, as good as they are preserved, deteriorate. All, the best they can do is point to what the past was like. But God wants us on display. Get a load of this. In the coming ages. So that in the coming ages he could show the incomparable riches of his grace. If a day is a thousand years with God, how long is one of his ages? God's not just going to put us where we will be for a short time. He's going to display us eternally. See, we've no concept of his timelessness or the magnitude of his power and purpose. In fact, in order for God to do this, he's going to have to transform our, our mortal bodies into something far greater to experience his kindness, not just where we live now, but in the ages to come. The kindness just keeps on going. See, all these wonderful and futuristic concepts come with an underlying piece of knowledge that Paul wraps up in verses 8 and 9. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, so no one is to glory as a Christian. We are what we are, and the future is what it, it will be for us solely because of a gift. It is all grace from the hand of God. If you read Old Testament, you know that Nebuchadnezzar went from the palace to the pasture and ate bread, like, ate grass like an ox, lost his sense of understanding. Read it in the book of Daniel. Alexander the Great, short life at 33, turned a man who had been a conqueror into one who had been conquered until he was a weeping and broken man. I remember when Saddam Hussein prophesied the mother of all wars had begun and they eventually dug him out of a hole in the ground looking more like a vagrant than a tyrant. Empty boasts. Paul said, my boast is in the Lord, and I trust ours is. Suppose today someone came into your life, or into my life, a Bill Gates, maybe, and said, here, Cal, there's enough to pay off your mortgage. Well, when I woke up in intensive care, it would be a great moment. <laughs> but suppose he also said, I took care of the balance on your truck. And I put enough into your account for you to get another one when that one goes. And here's a little something towards your retirement as well. And would you and Muriel like to go to the Wimbledon Tennis Championships this year? Here's front row seats, plane tickets, and accommodations in London. Sounds pretty dreamy, doesn't it? Because we all have our wish list. We all have the place, things we want to do and places we want to see. But what if the next day, after all of this good stuff had been done for me, I met someone and said, I did it. I paid off the mortgage, I kissed the bank goodbye, and now I own my car, and my retirement's looking better every day. There won't be a fish safe in the Humber River from this point on during fishing season. 
And you know what I would be? I might be truthful about what's happened in my life, but I'd be boastful and ungrateful. I would have failed to give credit where it's due. You see, there's a benefactor who deserves better. To give God less than what he deserves in praise and glory is to eat the rare bird without discerning its rarity, its quality, or its value. We are no different than the person who doesn't understand the value of their gift. If grace comes to our lives and we don't answer it with praise. Paul says so as he closes this section. And he says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us, for us to do. It's hard to illustrate this relationship. I thought I could describe it like the way I see things on a particular do-it-yourself show that I can only get in, in on the net now called the New Yankee Workshop. Way before Mike, Mike Holmes was on the scene, way before Brian Baumler became a household name, there was a hero for me, Norm Abrams. He, uh, thank you. Glad there's someone who's in my world. Norm could take a chunk of old, worn wood redeemed from a burn. He'd plane it, he'd square it, and he'd dress it, and then he'd apply it to a plan for a marvelous table. He'd use the best of instruments. Usually in his day, they were from Delta. He had band saws and table saws and routers. He knew how to use a mortise and chisel and a joiner. Any number of jigs, special joinery and glue. And then he'd finish it until the, the finished project. Every angle was right. Every detail covered just sits there. A table ready to be spread. But even when I work on an, an analogy like that, I realize what Norm makes still has wor wormholes, which he used to call character. It had weaknesses and a limited time span because when Norm is history and he's not yet, all of his work will probably only be one day ashes or sawdust or splinters. But when Norm's work is here and gone, God will still have his workmanship on display. And the world is gone as we know it. God's workmanship, a people out of every nation under heaven, will be still on display. And God will, will, will be able to look at this world and say, grace really did it. There will be union between Father, Son, and Spirit. Grace is the most powerful force the universe has seen. And for us, faith is so powerful because it connects us with the grace of God. It connects us to a level where we can become his workmanship for the countless ages of eternity. The church of Jesus Christ will draw attention to the finest work of God, so fine, in fact, that when Jesus describes us, he calls us his bride, his chosen one. The one he will present to the Father without spot, without wrinkle. That's you and me, folks. Don't feel too down this morning. If grace has touched your life, you are the workmanship of God.
you're put on display even today for the world to see the incomparable riches of God's grace or to be channels of his blessing. I trust we will give ourselves to the hand of God who's able to fit us into the people he wants us to be. You see, God's intention is not to hide us, but he wants to create something that he can display as his workmanship in Christ. We become, we become the wonderful living proof that the work of Christ was powerful and eternal. Will you allow him to sh show kindness through you? Will you allow his workmanship to be put on display for that kind of purpose? You see, time and eternity will only rightly be used to praise him for his kindness and his love and grace. As a final exercise before we walk out the door this morning, Ed, would you just come back with me this morning for a moment? And Brian, please come as well. I want us to connect just two verses in song and then I'll say the benediction today. I want us to connect the first and last verses of Amazing Grace for just for a certain reason. It illustrates my point. You know how it starts as the musicians get ready. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And then the next line is descriptive. That saved a wretch. I want you to focus on that word wretch. That saved a wretch like me. And when you begin the final verse of that, when we've been there 10,000 years. It's the difference between what we used to be and what our destiny is. So I want you to sing the first and last verses with me. And as we do, let's have a heart that is prayerful, saying, Lord, where can you put me on display? I guess collectively we can also ask the question, Lord, how can you put this church on display so that the kindness of God is shown and so that wonderful workmanship created to show the grace and the glory of God our Savior. Sing the first and last verses with me.
go from this place today, I pray that we will know who we are. That our identity will be clear. We are God's workmanship to show forth his kindness today. And we are his people to be put on display for countless ages of eternity. God's finest work. Amen.